Hello, hello, and welcome to Convos and Cocktails, where we talk, you engage, and we all drink. I'm your host, Lissa Khotlabi, and on today's episode, we have constitutional lawyer. I mean, she's got a lot of titles, to be honest, but I do first and foremost know her as a constitutional lawyer, Luando Paso, and she's also, are you the sole creator of Including Society? Yes, okay. I would say I am. Um, <laughs> cool, own it. <laughs> and um, we'll also be dis- using her book to discuss uh, a, a few topics around race, reconciliation, inclusion in South Africa, um, using incidents that have happened in our schools <sighs> to create the conversation. But first, before we begin, the cocktail on today's menu is called a Johnny Ginger. Am I getting that right? You yes, because it's supposed to have Johnny Walker. And it. ginger. I mean, now it's just ginger because you're not <laughs> drinking. Why are you not drinking? I want the long answer, the short one. Um, the the quickest, I guess? <laughs> I've never really had a love for alcohol. Okay. I think in my very later years, I discovered a love for gin and tonic mm-hmm. and then for champagne. And then I would drink those occasionally. Yeah. And then I went to my last gynae appointment. I pride myself that I've never had fibroids. Okay. She told me, oh, I see a, a small one developing and I completely panicked. And I'm, I'm such a believer in uh, acidity, alkalinity. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to move away from anything acidic okay. until my next gynae appointment because then I want to report back to you that the fibroid is gone, gone because okay. I'm not going to have any operation that I don't need to have. I, I, I've seen people go... I love go, that. No, I just can't. And all of my friends have had fibroids and have had operations. So that kind of scared me. It's like anything that I'm not really committed to, like yeah. alcohol, I don't even want to do occasionally yeah. if it could contribute to the growth of that thing. So that's why I'm not drinking with you today. <laughs> I mean, I'm not drinking either. I do what my guest does. So I just basically, we've got a cup of chimera because that's all it tastes like to me. <laughs> I'm not that big a fan of ginger. Nostalgia in a cup. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, cheers. cheers. Welcome. Welcome to Converse and Cocktails. Thank you so much. It's so professional, hey? I, I am like professional. That intro. On <laughs> Why are you doubting You're born my professionalism? For this. No, it was cool hearing that intro. It's like we just we were chatting one moment, next thing you're like in on. Yeah. I was like, okay, I guess we've started. I mean, basically, but I also do want it to feel like a chat. I don't want it to feel too much like a oh, 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 interview. Awesome. Um, but I do want to speak first and foremost, I've begun reading your book. Mm-hmm. Um Mostly today because there was this <laughs> chapter on coconuts that I just thought like, oh, it was written for me. Oh, my God. I can't believe how much I, I just relate to the stuff in your book. But yeah. Rondo's book is called Made in South Africa, A Black Woman's Stories of Rage, Resistance and Progress. So before we get into conversations on the country and fixing those problems, please tell us why you decided to write this book. One thing you said is that you you went to a particular story in the book Mm. and I wrote this as um, a number of essays because I don't expect everyone to read chronologically. Mm -hmm. People don't have time, but I hope someone will pick it up, see one of the names of the essays and be like, I feel like that's something I need right now. And it's a book that I think you can read over the course of your life, depending on what it is you need to hear. And, um, well, the reason why I wrote it is that uh, a publisher asked me to. Okay. That's perfect. It's the same right. as mine. Some people yeah. are like, why coconut cows? Why now? I'm like, girl, because they came. Exactly. But the other thing is maybe not feeling like I embody the 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 title of writer, of mm-hmm. author. It felt too big. It's not something I wanted. But I had been doing like a, a weekly column for the Daily Maverick. Mm-hmm. 
and I had actually started writing for them and other publications around 2013. Yeah. It was a time that I'd come back from studying in the US. I had all this pent up stuff that I wanted to release. It was also the era of Jacob Zuma. So Mm -hmm. it felt like we were all just, you know, howling at the wind. And uh, the publisher came to me, I think, late 2019, after I had like avoided all the emails. I saw them coming in. They're like, we want you to write a book. First of all, at that time, I didn't have any time to write a book. I don't want to commit to anything. Mm -hmm. But then when she emailed for like the third time, I was like, okay, I'll do a coffee date, which is always, okay, commitment. I'll show up, listen to you. That's the best I can do. (laughs) It's the best I can do. But when she told me her idea, I was like, I actually thought about this as an idea for a book because one of my favorite books is called When We Were Eight Years in Power by Tanahasi Coates and he's a columnist for The Atlantic. Okay. And in that book he collates all the essays he wrote under the Obama era mm-hmm. and it does like fresh um introductions to each uh, essay to kind of describe where he was yeah. when he was writing them. So um, the the publisher said to me, we just want to collect all your essays. And I'm like, no, we're going to collect the essays. I'm going to do uh, a fresh introduction to each of them because some of them maybe I, I feel differently about and I want to put yeah. that into context. But also it was like uh, there's some stuff that I never published that are either in my journals or I've just, uh, I do this thing where if I need, you know, to um, process something, mm-hmm. I'll send an email just to my friends. Okay. So, for instance, the one about Zuma Must Fall is a pure reflection from my journal that I sent to my friends over email. I think your mom included. <laughs> and um, it's just how I... You know, in a moment of feeling maybe really despondent, that's how I get back to a point of connection is writing a note mm-hmm. to my friends. So the Zuma Must Fall is a new one that's never been published anywhere. There are a couple of those, of those that are like that. So um, and then the pandemic happened. It's like, well, you've got time. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I think it was a confluence of timing and the ease of the structure of the book, having the meat, the, the, the meat of it mm-hmm. and just having to add a little bit. Yeah. So I did say I went to the coconut chapter first, mm-hmm. but that's not to say it's the only chapter I read because I read about your incident in PE with ice cream shop. <laughs> I read about your childhood when, um, you know, like I said, the coconut chapter mm-hmm. where the, the boy bullied you. So the thing I like the most about people who want to call themselves non-writers who actually are writers mm. is that the story is so easy to read because mm. it sounds like someone's just speaking to you mm-hmm. there's no flowery language there's no mm. oh well, my metaphors what 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 so in first of all your memory as well my god the things <laughs> that you remember i don't remember what happened last weekend <laughs> let alone when i was three i used to journal as a kid because um i don't know what happened first whether it was my first therapy session mm. i was way ahead of my time my mom took me to therapy at 12 mom <laughs> yes oh no but then after my therapy sessions she went in and also my therapist was my aunt <laughs> you see now she's like yeah we're at depression when are you gonna wash the dishes <laughs> so the idea was there she didn't quite know this therapy world my aunt was a therapist so that's where I started so the journaling has always been a part of my life so I think that helps with memory okay but also the coconut incident was just a formative experience it just shaped who I am mm. and it kind of just stamped me as someone who wasn't found to be acceptable in that environment it did glue so it or so mm-hmm. it's kind of like you think you have your people and then a moment because then you come from like Imarensha Primary which is the school I went to which mm-hmm. was well integrated but still very white yeah and feeling like, yeah, I've found my tribe at school, but it's still, I go to the suburbs, I don't live there, and it's not entirely me. 
I'm sure the kids on my street accept me, know mm-hmm. me, but that was a reminder that they don't either. So it was a, also, it was a, an incident of physical violence. So I remember that because I got physically violent yeah. and that doesn't happen quite often. And I remember how I felt after beating this boy who called me a coconut that I never want to be driven to that point ever again. And I think it informs my approach to a lot of things today that I don't like physical violence. I understood why it happened, but I just don't constantly want to operate from that space. So I want to ask you why the work you do, Mm -hmm. like why you do the work you do. Um, (laughs) The fact that you're in, you were or are a constitutional lawyer and the Mm. fact that you work so hard with reconciliation, with with, uh, matters of diversity and inclusion, your company is called Including Society. Why not Inclusion Society? Well, there are distinctions. (laughs) And I mean, you're hitting on something um, around language that Mm. I have a problem over. You know, a lot of people say I do diversity and inclusion work because that's what the market understands. But once I show up with uh, the interventions I have in mind, they may not be your traditional diversity workshops, which I hate. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even quite settled on the word. If you go to my website, you will see that there's... um, Uh, a part of it where I define the terms for myself so Mm -hmm. that we clear that I'm operating from this uh, definition of diversity representation, inclusion and all those things but even that I think needs an overhaul because I'm not quite too sure how useful those words are. When I did the whole branding thing, uh, the people I was working with um, kind of you know, directed me towards those words because they make sense Mm -hmm. in terms of starting a business But for me, it's more um, doing community building work, relationship building. Uh, Reconciliation is a big word, but I know in South Africa, it's like a highly charged word. Restorative justice is part of it. Um, You know, we work a lot with, I was actually talking, I do have a partner in including society in this part of it, where we offer these interventions. Her name is Savanthika. And I met Savanthika, during that September in 2019. I'm sure yeah. you can remember that week where we found out what happened to Oyinene. Yeah. And then xenophobic violence also sprang up all at the same time. So I was feeling crushed underneath the weight of all of this. And I needed to uh, create something. I wanted to respond to that moment by creating a space of healing for people. Because the last time we had that in South Africa, I joined a march. Mm-hmm. which is where I, was, uh, where I was at at the time. But this time around, it was such a deep sadness and I was scared that I was feeling such a deep disconnection that I was trying to do the opposite of that because as Savantika says, where there's disconnection, there's fear. Yeah. Or where there's fear, there's disconnection. So I wanted to be with people who were seeking the same thing as me. So I put out a call for facilitators, psychologists who could come and see people at Con Hill who are feeling the way I was feeling and sort of like counsel them through that. That's how I met her. And when I watched her process, it wasn't like about being woke or having an intellectual panel discussion or, um, you know, just... um, a lot of what you see online, it yeah. wasn't about that. It was literally saying we're feeling like a defeated people. Mm-hmm. What's happening? Why did this happen to Uyunene? Why do we keep have, uh, keep having xenophobia, violence? And also, um, how do I take care of myself at this time? Yeah, I saw her process and I completely loved it. So a lot of my work is informed 
by psychology, by the kind of coaching and facilitation that she does. And I bring my legal background, even though I feel like my legal background has limitations. That's Mm -hmm. why I left law. And that's why I do the work that I do, because the last legal job that I had, I signed an NDA Mm -hmm. that lets you know that it wasn't (laughs) the best (laughs) parting of ways. And it was because of a lot of these issues that we're kind of talking about now, the undertones of, you know, feeling working at a white firm and just feeling like um, you just always in constant opposition and it feeling like, I mean, in in that scenario, you know, I worked for someone difficult and I remember I was like, I'm going to mirror her energy. How she shows up that day is how I'm going to show up and I'm going to be even more extra. But at the end of the day, it was leaving me feeling drained and alienated from who I was. I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And then I remember reading a book called A Return to Love by Marianne Williamson, which reminded me of my values. And I'm like, I'm going to love this person. I love her out of her <laughs> shit. <laughs> if you are, sorry, hold on. <coughs> okay. um, it's the ginger. It is. It's, it's bringing, I don't know what, the flu season. Oh, God, I hate It's like ginger. stony. You know, it's, it stays <laughs> <Like> here. <laughs> yeah, oh. that's what it is. Um, okay, so I want to speak specifically about the work that you do with mm-hmm. schools because we've been seeing a lot in the news. I mean, not recently, just always always mm. um about about um racism in schools racism in varsity i saw i don't know if it's in your book or i saw an article but you were mm. speaking about the incidents with kuro mm. in yeah, 2015 it's in the book. and you see i read mm. i read <laughs> thank you um, and that how that kind of got you mm. to a point where you were like okay something's got to be done mm. um and i think there was another school in Pretoria, no that was pretoria another school in the northwest mm. that also had uh, mm. you know incidents of racism so just to ask and i know you don't have all the answers but i feel like if there's a guiding light that i always turn to in these moments mm. it's you so oh, thank you no like legit your page is and your work is just incredible i can't speak enough about it but why do you think we're at this point in 2015 2016 we know pretoria goes high with the hair thing um all the schools came out two years ago with their mm. incidents of racism. Why are we still here? Let me ask you a question because okay. you went to uh, one of these schools. <laughs> and I want to know, when you were, oh, looking back, actually, mm-hmm. what do you think the point of your schooling life was? Not what they said it was about, but what it felt like it was about. Grooming wives for the boys that went to schools. <laughs> next to us like literally it was like everything we did was to get etiquette and to get manners and to then pluck a husband out of Hilton and you guys go to varsity and get married like either in varsity or straight out of varsity Um, it felt like a finishing school to me and it felt very much about maintaining the privilege so Mm -hmm. that's why it was important that it's a Hilton boy or a Michael House boy not Mm. just a boy from keeping it in the family exactly everything it was very much about that elitism classism maintaining that thing your kids also go there were kids who's like three generations worth of St. Mm. Anne's kids um, and I was like well my grandmother wasn't here <laughs> my mother wasn't here for sure <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it was for me about that Like, why didn't that work for you? well because I went to St. Anne's I think more I don't want to say woke but I was mm. very a Joba kid I was mm. much more aware of like the shit that was happening um, I, I do think woke is maybe the word that I was starting to mm-hmm. feel in, in, in high school and I had many incidents of chaos and fighting incidents because I was just like this is not how the world works guys this mm. little farm where we just like maintain mm. privilege and like where races can't date each other I mean I had situations at St. where people would talk about oh we don't date across you know the kind of line kind of thing and I was like in 2006 even in 2006 that was crazy to me mm-hmm. so I can't imagine now but 
it was just coming from Joburg. I think I was just more aware that like we do mix in Joburg and people, my first boyfriend was white. I mean, mm. boyfriend is a strong word, but like <laughs> my first little thing, thing, thing <laughs> was white and everybody was mixing and mm. um, we had interracial friends and multiracial friendship groups. It wasn't a thing. Mm. Race was very much a thing at St. Anne's and I, I just was very shocked about it. Um, about how backwards they were. And were there some uh, Not students... Not you turning this into your podcast. No, we're getting so... But... <laughs> oh, we're doing it like a facilitation thing. Okay, no, okay. no, it's not even. <laughs> I'm just interested because I feel like... There are people who buy into that, yeah. right? For them, it's like, oh, this is a great plan. My life is sorted. I'm going to go to the school, gain access, gain entry. Exactly. And now that's you know my the life. CEO of Investec or whatever it is is like the Hilton rewards. boy 1950. So he's like, oh. What are the rewards? I mean, access, like you said. It, yeah. it really it does put a different view on people's faces when you go to when I was still in the job market mm. going to interviews and oh, nice. saying my when school. you were in it's so nice yeah. past tense um, no I've worked mm. very hard to not be there but anyway um, you know having St. Anne's on mm. as part of you because for me high school shouldn't matter when you're in a job situation there's varsity in between that internships a lot of experience but it matters to a lot of people when you say Mm. the school and it it sounds like those prestigious schools so that for me it it put me on the top of a lot of lists that probably Mm. might not have been there for me if I'd gone to a different school Mm. so Um, that's why our parents send us there right it's because uh, they want better for us and they think that's what better is but then what they don't know is how it messes you up because you know, our parents have this thing, but you turn out fine. Look at you. You have exactly. a podcast. You did a book. You know, maybe this stuff wouldn't have happened without St. Anne. So we do these calculations. We saw each other on Saturday and the word was negotiations. Yeah. And we're always negotiating with the world. And a lot of people were like, well, if we know that these schools are like this, like, why, why would there? you go to Stellenbosch? <laughs> yeah. Do you know I wanted to go to Stellenbosch? Sure, I never school, had that. I knew it was racist from no, my time. No, I just time. thought, ooh, it's in Paul. I have family in Paul. Never mind that my family roots in Paul was like as farm workers. But mm-hmm. I was like, I have family in Paul. It sounds like a quaint town. Also, I'm very traditional in my thinking because the schools I went to are very traditional. You know, you wear your blazer, you do yeah. this. And I was so scared that varsity is going to be the wild, wild west. <laughs> I, I wanted needed, the wild no, west. I, I, I like, needed no. containment. I'm like, because I think when you grow up as a black girl, the thing is people tell you is like, you're going to get pregnant and your life is over. <laughs> <laughs> so what drove me is like avoid all of that. Feel like Stellenbosch is the place I can sequester myself and be safe <laughs> from all those things and actually get my degree. And I'm told they still wear a uniform there, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I think that, you know, your question is why do these things keep happening? Yeah. It's not isolated just in schools. I think schools are just a microcosm of, you know, what's happening in the corporate home, and, in yeah. corporate, in churches. Also, I definitely want to get you in for a corporate chat, but I don't want to go <laughs> to corporate now because then our time is going to be 17 hours. Oh, but yeah. I want to stay with school because so, I, yeah, you know. I mean, lot. if you look at the roots of like the school you went to, um, probably, you know, I'm sure they don't call themselves this, but I'm sure they were very much like a mission school. Pretty much. <laughs> it's about, uh, even though black uh, students probably were not allowed at the time but even the students that they had there at the time it's about conforming mm-hmm. it's about being disciplined I think that that kind of education system under colonialism is to aid capitalism how are you going to produce workers Ooh. people who are just going to 
do as they are told mm. because that's what the system needs and also in terms of women grooming them to play their part yeah. in a capitalist society playing the support playing the wife you mm. know and also and in a straight world because they even banned girls from going with other women or other girls to our formals and our matric dances so yeah, yeah even in a race way but also in a, in a misogyny in a, in a homophobic way so you're groomed for just being a worker for being docile you know being loyal to those values not thinking for yourself all the things that we understand that school should not be about today mm. that you should be a critical thinker but as you see students become critical thinkers awoke as they say then all of a sudden you are going against uh, you know what the school is about yeah. it's not celebrated for me like some of these incidents are just rich moments of human interaction and these schools are not equipped to deal with them. Mm. The teachers are in fear, the principals are worried about being cancelled or their schools ending up in the papers. There's really no personal development that people are doing to be able to exist in this world in 2022 because even the constitutional court says you can't hit children in school anymore yeah. not even in the home because we're trying to create a world where we don't enforce rules mm-hmm. through violence and saying you can't talk back and you can't think for yourself and if you try to we're going to beat you up now it's like without that recourse to you know spanking you or whatever it is we, we are supposed to move into a culture of more engagement and talking and, and things like that. Because if we take Stellenbosch as an example, mm-hmm. right? I wrote about it on my Instagram and that when I read the history of Stellenbosch, it's a school that was started by a, a, a mining magnet, an Afrikaans one who yeah. profited from the, the diamond rush in Kimberley. Obviously, for you and I, our minds start turning when we hear that. Mm-hmm. It almost makes me, you know, shake a little bit because. But also, I'm not surprised by that because I'm not of what surprised it's like. By it, but I'm surprised at the fact that they just write it in that way. Yeah, there's no and like there's no for me there's no pride in that. That's not an origin story you should just tell in a a historical way or a political way is that show me that you understand that your school being founded by someone who profited and probably planted the country through diamond uh, mining Mm -hmm. started this institution has problems that can be connected to where we are today and also by telling the story without being critical you're saying to that white boy who urinated on the black students uh, belongings that your heritage has some kind of validity because mm-hmm. it hasn't been questioned so they're sitting with this simple narratives of uh, probably Africana nationalism yeah. and I don't know if that's the case I'm just projecting that's what happens when we don't critically assess you know our, our, our history and I can even say the same thing probably for St. Anne's that mm-hmm. when you look at its history it doesn't betray an understanding of ooh you know um, let's own up to the fact that we were founded as a white only school yeah. why was that and what must it be like for a black student who's joining an institution that existed I don't know how many years prior you joined that it was you know mostly white mm-hmm. And I think there's a lack of empathy from uh, teachers, the entire school community of what it's like for a black child to come into these systems. And also, uh, you know, beyond just the school, you know, you go and you hope that, you know, you're going to do as, you know, you are taught to do, get your matric, you know. Put your head down and Put your head down, speak well. All the things you do, because a lot of survival hinges on the kind of school you go to Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, 
not even for me what she learned at that school because I think 90% of what I learned at my school is completely useless to me. <laughs> it just yeah. it, it just didn't equip me for life. But it was about being socialized in a particular way. Yeah. In your case, to be someone's wife and, you know, to be a sort of like docile woman who's going to, you know, play wife from for some successful guy. Because for me, even that is such a, um, a white colonial... A view still mm. of a woman's place in society and the fact that one person must cook yeah um, i want to ask you why do you think these conversations are always had simply by black people because i think one of the things that also got to me was that we went to the same schools we experienced the same things maybe i voiced mm. some of those things a whilst in school but definitely in my character now mm. why is it that white people have either an apathy or even a denial um, to the things that are happening. You know, before I came here, I was talking to Savantha because uh, we are currently working with such a school. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you that um, the school we're working with, I feel like there is such a an embrace of okay. um, doing this right. Is this from the parents and teachers or you mean just from the students? So far, the, the teachers were about to meet with the students. Okay. Uh, but we're even putting a lot of thought in terms of how we even approach the students and all of that. Mm-hmm. And even your school, uh, they sent me an email. I must tell you, it was one of the best emails I've ever gotten. It was so clear. It was so comprehensive. I was like, that's so dignifying for me. It's like the respect that I got in terms of, you know, clarity in the email. So you get brought into these schools and... um one of the things Samantha and I are dealing with, mm-hmm. right? We're not interested in racial literacy. Yeah. You can look that up yourself, what unconscious bias is and w- white privilege and all of that stuff. Read that on your own. It's really not that hard yeah. to understand. But I think what's happening is that there's just this veil of fear. And I think it's even outside of the schooling system. Mm-hmm. Our lives are ruled by fear, right? Even our online lives. There's so many things that I have to think twice about before I post and all those things because I know what it can mean today, yeah. right? So imagine if you're 14 years old and um, I think it's something with we've both experienced some kind of backlash, you more than I have and I'm sure that changes you once you see you know, um, people not um, being open to engaging on maybe something you now perceive as an error Mm -hmm. that you made. It's like there's no learning together through those moments. So in a particular case that I've worked on is it's the classic example of a white uh, student calling another the N-word. Okay, in South Africa. Yes. And and maybe that's the exercise. What comes up for you in terms of uh, what do you want to see happen in that scenario? And these are children yeah always keep in mind i mean yo it's very difficult for me to say i think and be honest because no i mean i think it it also depends because um first of all i just get so surprised when words that aren't even part of south africans lexicon Mm. get used in in this country and very much maybe the k-word not so much but the n-word the the we have those conversations they're Mm. out there whether you can say it in rap music whether you can say it um, to your black friends if they say you can like there are those conversations there and so for me someone saying it even in a school context is definitely doing it on purpose Mm -hmm. um, to hurt Mm. but I mean when I was in school I got called the k-word and my my feeling wasn't these kids need to be expelled Mm. or they need to be Mm. whatever it was just let's have the conversation now Mm. because we had the conversation 
but then we were punished because our, the way we did it was too aggressive mm. for the, the girls and they started crying then the teachers all came in and said no you guys did too much mm. and so for me I just wished I had maybe a black teacher or a Luando from including society who could just come in and facilitate a proper conversation about why we were so upset what that yes, word means that's the key and why you cannot what why was you it like for Lesejo to hear that yeah. word understand because and what does it mean when you say that kind of word so um, you hit on you know. for me what is more of a worthwhile process because mm. these schools tend to move to like this will expel and suspend yeah. and all those things it's all punitive which it's all for the me, fear of this, this conversation like you said of being cancelled yeah in the but also colonial roots because that's how we deal with dissent you'll mm-hmm. be punished or bad behaviour you know you will be excommunicated yeah and um, it's even more so today because the tools of that are so much easier. We, mm-hmm. have, we all have a bullhorn that we can use. But I think that for me, being able to navigate that community discussion, being able to ventilate to those different views, um, I don't think, you know, um, moving to sort of like the private disciplinary process of just the two or three students involved yeah. in the matter helps. And I think it's about guiding uh, our schools, uh, as Savantika and I say, to be, or the the people in charge, or even the students themselves, mm. because we live in a highly reactive world. Yeah. You know, breaking news will come on your phone, and you're like, Ugh, and you want to react to a point where, you know, you you will feel like this thing is now in control of you. Mm-hmm. Whatever you've just seen, the story or the tweet or whatever it is, now is running your life. Whereas you want to get to a point where. You know, and, and this is the thing that attracted me to Savantika's work of being able, I can express my anger, yeah. which I do. I'll, I'll, I'll write and say, I'm in pain over this or I'm angry, but that anger and pain don't actually dictate uh, what I do next. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, they would, and sometimes I wouldn't even be able to articulate that uh, I'm angry and you actually want to create an environment for for students to be able to articulate their feelings because I think that part of why maybe we even bad in, in our social relationships, friendships and romantic relationships because that's not part of our education. Yeah. You know, we, we give people the silent treatment, we pretend we're okay when we're not because that's the training of mm-hmm. what it means to be a good girl kind of thing. But it's okay to be like, Actually, mom, I don't like that you just said that. And let's talk through it. But now it's kind of like you will sit in silence, go on your phone and retell the story and uh, ask for even command for the person to be cancelled. Or that feeling of anger that you have is going to dictate your next move. And that may not be the best move. And I know that from personal experience, like the coconut story. Mm. I was... 13 or whatever that was a highly highly reactive moment where I grabbed my racket and I beat this boy for saying something I didn't like Mm -hmm. in the moment it felt like I was asserting my dominance and I was saying to him the bullying stops today you will never do this again and I remember getting home out of breath locked the door behind me I called my mom and I was like I just beat um, this boy with my racket my mom was like good (laughs) so I come from an enabling environment of like you gotta do what you gotta do but at the same time I had to say to my mom but it doesn't feel good right now like Mm. I just beat him in front of people he turned me into something I don't like but you know now that I'm older and I've had experiences like that I'm able to say it doesn't feel good when I react from that place I want to develop other tools that I can say I'm angry 
agree, but get to the point that you just mentioned of, let's talk about why that hurt me. Mm-hmm. And you need to receive that. Because in this other incident, the, school, the, the, um, the student was expelled before that conversation could be had. Yeah. So she's removed, but she's out in the world, not even you know, now contextualizing. she's from her own anger. She's bitter. There's resentment there. And the students who've been left behind kind of like uh, maybe feel like this is the way we resolve disputes. Mm-hmm. And they think it worked, but it's just a short-term gratification. Yeah, I mean, I'm less forgiving when it's a varsity age. <laughs> I think when it's you know, yeah, and peeing on a especially desk. if you are a repeat offender yeah. and things like that. But you know, part of restorative justice because I feel like that is more of an African way of uh, accountability and mm-hmm. resolving disputes. Is you don't get removed from society. Yeah, not even a rapist. Mm-hmm. You will be there. And people will have, you know, to engage with you, which sometimes is harder Mm -hmm. because you have to listen to all the ways in which you've broken the community and you're not going to be exiled somewhere. There's a concerted effort that you will remain part of this Mm -hmm. community. Yes, there will be accountability measures, but you're still one of us. Even through raping someone, you don't lose your place because we believe that your humanity can be redeemed. That is a very high calling. And Mm -hmm. most of us have run out of that because we used it in the 90s and you're like, white people are not doing, they're not coming to the table. Mm. So it feels like we're always offering, offering, offering that. That's the thing. For me, it's It's like... It's not reciprocating. I think at any age, anybody is, is, uh, you know, able to make a mistake and can be forgiven. I I think rape is such a difficult one Mm. for me to Mm. think about forgiveness for. But just the fact that I need to see the work first because it's always us offering the the leaf of like or whatever the branch instead mm. of them offering it to say this is how I'm going to do better I don't that's what I don't enjoy about South African landscape it's always on the black person to forgive whether or not there's an, even an apology I think it's a global way yeah, yeah I'm, a- so, I'm so <laughs> tired of that shit yeah and I think that's the the um, I think what um Auntie Kroch, who's an Afrikaans writer who I admire a lot, says that in that transition moment, you know, the biggest regret is that we always saw a black man or woman extending their hand Mm -hmm. and there's no equivalent of a white person doing the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the shaky foundation on which we're built. And I think it informs uh, your question of why are they not doing their work? It's because who's the example Mm -hmm. kind of thing at a sort of national level of someone doing that work and also now it's compounded with fear of being cancelled because that's the discourse now that there's no room for error you better get it right if not and I think under those circumstances nothing useful can be done No I definitely agree I think cancel culture for me I think it was something I was very passionate about when I was much younger but mm. I'm definitely like I don't <laughs> I you don't, don't see respond how from that place yeah. right so that's the evolution you want to see even in the young people that I work with in the schools that um, maybe you know that was my approach last year mm. but now that I've lived through this episode and someone's being expelled and all of that it didn't feel as good as I thought it would yeah. be a year later <laughs> like uh, how, what did we gain from that mm. are we freer because even with Stellenbosch that's what they have to sit with right that you can remove that person there but if you think that's the extent of your work then you're sorely mistaken DM me and tell me which future guest I should be having a convo with while we sip our cocktails now sit back relax and enjoy your drink Okay, so I want to read two quotes. Um, I think they're yours because it was on your page and it says Luando Klaso. Okay, if my name is on it, then it's me. (laughs) Um, But I want to read these two quotes and then I kind of want to ask you to like 
know, react. Just discuss them or react. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the first one says we implore white people to rid themselves of internalized mm. white supremacist thinking without realizing that black inferiority also props up white supremacy. We have to be as intentional in ridding our society of black inferiority as we are white supremacy. The two are inextricably linked. Mm. I thought I was going to joke on that word. (laughs) (laughs) We cannot profess... That's ads English. (laughs) (laughs) It came back, it came back. We cannot profess to abhor white supremacy without recognizing how we enable and promote black inferiority through our reckless language. Mm. So I actually think we should, you know, one at a time, because Mm. I think the next one is quite different. Um, You know... That is from an article essay I wrote after um, the leader of the EFF Mm -hmm. um, made a comment about why he no longer or the the EFF doesn't use black lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I was so dismayed by that because I've been that black lawyer at a firm and you know what it's like, you know, um, trying to make budget exceed your budget because that's how you get promoted Mm -hmm. you know all the odds that you're facing people don't really trust you with the work Uh, you're trying to get clients on your own and not rely on your white boss to Mm. bring in you know the bacon and stuff knowing full well that black people have to be exceptional to be equal to white averageness my body's (laughs) just fatigued thinking about (laughs) the work of a a corporate lawyer right there's so much anxiety around it and no room for error as you said Mm -hmm. you must be exceptional the mistake that you make will define you Mm -hmm. in a way that it doesn't your white counterparts and all of that and also define other black lawyers because there's black business and that's the point I make in the in the article that for his successes don't reflect on me Mm -hmm. should he fail then that will reflect on me. Right now, he's just exceptional. He's like (laughs) sitting there on his own. That's how he's viewed. Uh, But should he do or say something that's unpopular, then it's imputed on all of us. Mm. And that's the unfairness. So that just came from a recognizing in that moment that I have no need to fight this person for what they're saying, but I want them to understand how it lands with me, that it's hurtful as someone who's been, you know, um, in that environment that you can't be sabotaged again by your own leaders. Mm -hmm. It's like things are already hard enough. We don't need someone who has such a big voice you know, a national voice to say that uh, black lawyers aren't as good effectively as white lawyers. So I was saying there that that's an internalized racism that is expressing that I also have, Mm -hmm. right? And I think all of us... um, I think the, the, the tragedy of being black in this world is that even though theoretically you know these things, um, the world still runs on a capitalistic system that mm-hmm. requires you to make concessions and things like that. So you can't completely divest from this world or these schools. You mm-hmm. have to participate, but hopefully you participating with a purpose that I'm trying to get somewhere. Even as a lawyer, you know, if you want to get somewhere, probably a white law firm, traditionally white law firm is where you need to end up right and if you don't end up there if you are taken on by a small black firm everyone will question your experience Mm. it can't be as good and all those things so even the decisions that have informed my life come from that inferiority complex that um the the more removed i am from black people the better my life will be whether it's geographically whether it's educationally you know whether it's uh, professionally mm. um, all of those things mark progress yeah. and um, I think that in as much as white supremacy is the thing that is always on our tongues we need to talk about how we 
have Enable still it. internalized mm. that we are inferior to white people and it matters what they think about us. It matters that, um, you know, we get the acknowledgement and the approval from them. It matters that they invite us into the... Um, deals and their projects and all those things mm. that stamp of approval from a white institution or a white person far exceeds anything a black person will say yeah. so I think that um, when it was surprising because the EFF is all about you know a black nationalism and consciousness and all of that and in another breath to then say that it was like that's how strong yeah. internalized black inferiority is mm-hmm. and I hope that's the discourse that they start because for me that's also uh, high on the political agenda we can't always focus on white. the actions of white people yeah. but all the ways in which we internalize our feelings of being less than yeah. and and one of the most consequential books I've read is Cost and cost is about um, the hierarchy that mm. you know ex- aspects of our lives operate on that people have lesser value than others other people at the top of the hierarchy whether it's the caste system as it operates in India or the caste system that led to the holocaust or the caste system that defined the apartheid system yeah. or the caste system that led to slavery and Jim Crow and all those things is that those things are so embedded mm. in who we are that you don't need the apartheid regime or the holocaust to happen today for them to still very much be pervasive, right? Um, That's the insidiousness of apartheid, that the regime is gone, but it's left the caste there. And I think that a lot of us uh, truly believe that we belong at the back of the bus. Luando's book, Made in South Africa, A Black Woman's Stories of Rage, Resistance and Progress. How do people find this book? Follow me on Instagram, first sure. of all, at, at including, including Society people. and Facebook, which I'm hardly on. I don't think anyone's on Facebook anymore. <laughs> it used to be my favorite. <laughs> like, literally, I just loved Facebook and uh, Twitter, in, in, including or Inc underscore society something like that you'll find it but it's not quite including society um you can find my book at all good bookstores as my publisher likes to say but i know that it's now sold out in a lot of them that you're gonna have to buy through my publisher and if you You can borrow my copy as well yes um, that's what i love people who share books it's amazing um yeah i know libraries have them so some of the schools that i i work with they have them in their libraries um, yeah, but Tracy McDonald is my publisher, TM Publishers. You can look her up on Instagram and order directly from her if you can't find it at bookstores. But sure. I think it should be there. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, I did not touch this chimera because, my God, it's <laughs> awful. <laughs> ah, it's mm. awful. The next time you're coming, we're going to have something Oh, it'll different. be after my gynae appointment. Okay, so and we'll I'm know. pretty much going to have great results. For and sure. we'll celebrate with a, a, a proper cocktail. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you, everybody, for listening. It has been a great pleasure. This is... I love learning. I love listening. I love Luando. So oh, I love you else. too. Um, but yes. And your mom. <laughs> Shout out to Penny. <laughs> She's going to love that. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much and goodbye. Yeah. Convos and Cocktails, produced in partnership with Nasukho Tabi and WMG Rep. Drinks never end at the bar. So join me over at the socials with your cocktail where we get to continue the conversations. Simply follow me at Lesoko Klavi. See you there. Recorded at Solid Gold Podcasts. Solid Gold. To be understood, you must first be heard. I look forward to our next Converse and Cocktails. And don't forget, mo money, mo hito. Or whatever Biggie said. <laughs>